Well, we know from our different experiences that uh, announcements are something we deal with almost constantly. Uh, we, we interact with various announcements all the time. So we check our mail and, and there's engagement or wedding announcements that show up with some level of regularity. Uh, politicians announce that they're running for office. We read the news and find that there are different announcements of different uh, things going on. For example, we just read, the, read that Fred Meyer announced that they've reached an agreement with the union and the, the employees are going to be back to work or they were back to work yesterday. Uh, we, we live in a, in a world full of announcements. Uh, many of them are, are, are incidental announcements. They, they come to us and we think about them. We maybe shrug them off or make a mental note to self, but they're not uh, of, of that uh, great kind of significance. However, some announcements are extremely meaningful and, and monumental. And as we find ourselves right in the center of the Christmas season, we know that of all the announcements we may, we may navigate in our days, uh, there has never been a bigger or more important announcement than the one we consider from our text this morning. Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, as we know, the Lord had made a promise to Adam and Eve on the other side of their rebellion against Him. Uh, God had made a promise that one day there will be a child born who will crush the serpent. Evil will be ultimately uh, done away with. And so in the garden, the Lord promised that while humanity's sin in many ways brought ruin to the created order and certain condemnation from God Himself, uh, while sin brought death, God's final word was not going to be a hopeless word, uh, but a hope-filled word, and that there was an advent promise. All the way back there in Genesis 3, there's this expectation that's set that God is going to send a son who's ultimately going to be the Savior of the world. And in our text today, we have the announcement from heaven that the time for that event has come. So all the centuries and all the generations uh, between Adam and Eve and this young woman named Mary have passed. All those centuries and generations have gone by, uh, but this promise from God has remained, and now it reaches this climactic fulfillment as God sends the angel Gabriel to Mary to tell her that the time has come. This Savior is going to be born of a woman just as God had promised. Uh, so in all the various announcements that we, that we navigate in our lives, in, in many ways there is no announcement bigger than this announcement that we're thinking about this morning. Jesus is going to be born. This is right at the center of all that's gone on in human history. History is pointed forward to this event. Even where we're at in history, we look back to this event as the monumental arrival of God Himself into our experience of fallen humanity in order to be the Savior of the world. This is uh, the great center of our faith. And, uh, and, and we have uh, comments along these lines that help us understand the significance of this. In fact, there's one uh, comment from a, from a pastor in a, in a much earlier generation, but he talks about this passage and he says this. He says, we have in these verses the announcement of the most marvelous event that ever happened in this world, the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, it is a passage which we should always, always read with mingled wonder, love, and and praise. It's a passage we should always read with mingled wonder, love, and praise. And we say amen to that because in these verses we have an announcement of this most marvelous event, the fact that Jesus has come and we do come to it with this kind of posture of heart. Wonder that the Lord would work in these kind of ways. How amazing is this? Love for our Savior who would come and give Himself up in order to redeem us and praise to the God who works His purposes as so gloriously in history just as we see 
manifest through the scriptures. And so we come to this passage in, in that way this morning. Here's Mary about to have this announcement made that she's going to be blessed with this child. And, and while there's no doubt very uh, unique circumstances surrounding this, in fact, there's extraordinary uniqueness that Mary would be the girl that God chooses to, to work so miraculously with and bring about the, 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 the birth of Jesus himself. While there's extraordinary uniqueness to this announcement, at the same time, there's also far-reaching application for us as we study this passage. Because Luke, as a gospel writer, he's not writing merely to uh, uh, display some information for us. He's not writing merely so that we can know facts that happen, but he's writing in order that we can know what happened and respond to that truth in a life turned toward Christ. And so even in Mary's own experience, we can see something of our own experience as we ask ourselves, how will we, re how will we respond to this announcement? We see in the text that Mary at the end, she embraces the announcement that Jesus is going to be born. And we're brought uh, by her own experience to ask ourselves the question, have we embraced this announcement? Have we come to terms with the fact that the Savior has come? And are we really trusting in Him as we're called to do? And so if you haven't yet, you can turn uh, to Luke chapter 1. Again, verses 26 to 28, we'll, uh, we'll take up our study today and we'll, we'll make our way through the passage. Uh, first of all, we're going to focus on verses 26 and 27. And in verses 26 and 27, uh, we'll pay attention to the, the scene of this announcement and its characters. So the scene and its characters there in verses 26 and 27. Um, now, as you read through Luke's gospel and then as you read through, La through Acts, which Luke also wrote, uh, you'll notice that in Luke's writing, he tends to be a very scenery-oriented writer. Uh, in fact, one scholar by the name of F.F. F. Bruce, he describes Luke's writing style as a lecture accompanied by a slideshow. So, so Luke not only recounts the truths of events around Jesus' ministry, but he very often gives us clear pictures of, of the scenes and characters to go along with the truth that he's expounding for us. And, and we find that in our text today, because things start there in verse 26 with this scene being set. And, and we have some details there that become very pertinent uh, to us understanding what's going on. Uh, so, for example, right at the beginning, we're told that this announcement is going to come to Mary in the sixth month. And if we're just jumping into this story like we're doing today, we can wonder in the sixth month of what? Well, what are we talking about here in the sixth month? Uh, but if we read Luke from the beginning, uh, we realize that, that we're actually in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. That's what's being referenced here. That's the story that directly preceded uh, the one we're looking at today. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy is when this angel Gabriel, as we read, was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Uh, so here we have this, this scene information. Uh, we read that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth, which, which is an amazing statement to read just in and of itself. An angel was sent by God to Nazareth. Actually, you notice here that Luke has to tell us uh, that Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. So this is about 50 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. But we have to be told where Nazareth is because the reader of Luke's gospel, even if they were the first reader of Luke's gospel and relatively familiar with the geography of the day, they probably would have had no idea that the town called Nazareth even existed. In fact, it wasn't until uh, some archaeological discovery in, in 1962 
uh, when some pre-Christian documents were uncovered that listed Nazareth as a city, it wasn't until then that there was ever any evidence that Nazareth, Nazareth existed apart from the biblical record. Um, and since then, there's been some archaeological uh, digging going on in the area. They discovered it to be a very small place. Maybe about 500 people lived in the town. Um, so, so this Nazareth, that this town is nothing exciting. It's unknown. It's unimpressive. Uh, in fact, there's a, a funny little comment in John chapter 1 where there, 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 there's this man named Nathaniel who's told about Jesus, and he kind of scoffs when he hears where Jesus is from. If you remember that interaction, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, Nazareth, really? We're talking about that little town? So, so in its own day, Nazareth was, was a disregarded little place. And Luke knows for his readers, as he, as he wants to uh, give these facts according to the truth, so that Theophilus, who he's writing his, his gospel to, first of all, can understand exactly what's gone on. He knows he needs to locate Nazareth for his readers, simply because it's an unknown little place. It's a backwater little town. And so he tells us, in a, to- a town of Nazareth, in the area of Galilee. He gives us some geographical uh, framework there. So we have the scene of this announcement, this backwater little town, and then we also have characters that Luke introduces us to, at least at some level. Uh, so we read that, that Gabriel, the angel, is sent by God to this town. Now, uh, we're introduced to Gabriel uh, a few times in the biblical record. The last time, the most recent, was when he made the announcement of John the Baptist's birth to Zechariah earlier in this chapter. So there, there Gabriel actually told Zechariah, he says, I stand in the very presence of God. So, so here's Gabriel, this angel, this higher order spiritual being. He, he's a chief angelic messenger from God. And, and we also know from other places, like, for example, Daniel chapter 10, that, that, he's, that he's an angelic warrior really engaged in the battle in the spiritual realm. In fact, if you want to read Daniel 8 to 10 for homework later, you'll, you'll interact with, with Gabriel some in that, in that section. And, and apparently he looked apart, this, this kind of chief angelic warrior messenger coming from God. Uh, he must have looked apart because when he shows up to talk to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel falls on his face, we're told. He's terrified at the sight of Gabriel. So Gabriel shows up, Daniel's face down on the ground. Interestingly, Zechariah here in Luke 1, he actually does the exact same thing. He, he sees Gabriel, and, 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 and the, he is immediately overcome with fear, the text tells us. So he's, he's put down to the ground himself in terror as he just sees this angel. Now, here, what's interesting is Mary's not afraid of Gabriel's physical appearance, which we'll touch on in, in a moment. But it is ironic that the only one not afraid of Gabriel in the whole Bible is a teenage girl. The teenage girls are tough. Right? Don't let anybody tell you differently. This is quite the, quite the thing here. So we meet Gabriel again, and he comes to Mary, who's engaged to Joseph. So this angelic, heavenly warrior is showing up to speak to Mary, who's engaged to Joseph. Now, now we know from Matthew's Gospel that Joseph was a carpenter. Uh, Mary and Joseph, these two were, were, were engaged. Um, Mary was probably a teenager at best again during this time. Uh, that's about the age when engagement would occur. Joseph was a town carpenter, nothing glamorous. Um, Luke does tell us that Joseph is from the family line of David. So Luke's already giving us some, some clues that royal connections are present here. Um, but with all that in our minds, the, the scene with its characters gives us an... an uh, unimportant picture to start things off, if we can put it that way? Because here we have this angelic messenger, but where is, where is this angelic messenger sent? Well, well, he's sent to, to Mary in this town of no account, engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who's got some royal family history, but there's not really anything else too glamorous to speak of about him. In fact, here we're not even told about his profession. It's just Mary and this fellow named Joseph, and that's it. 
And yet from the glories of God's presence in the heavenly realm, one of God's chief, chief uh, messengers and warrior angels comes to this dusty town of Nazareth with an announcement. It's just something to think about, that this God of transcendent heavenly glory doesn't send Gabriel to, to the, the city center of Jerusalem. That might be something we would expect. Send Gabriel to the city center of Jerusalem, maybe to a, to a girl's home who lives just a few blocks away from the temple precinct. That would be more, more appropriate. Or maybe a, a high priest's daughter. That might make some sense to us. The angel could come and appear there to that, to that girl with maybe some religious pedigree or something of that nature. But, but by the direction of God, Gabriel comes to Mary, and he comes to Mary in Nazareth of all places. Can anything good even come from Nazareth? That's the response to that. And we just remind ourselves, especially during this Christmas season, just in the way Luke sets the scene, that, that the Lord of the universe is not one to look on things the same way we do. His program for salvation is not coming in a way that's first of all glamorous by any political or social or religious sorts of standard. His gospel program is a program that begins in low ways. And if we're going to understand the announcement to Mary, even more importantly, if we're ultimately going to embrace this announcement ourselves, we need to be prepared to bring low, to, to begin in this low kind of place, to be low as we consider these things. The announcement of Jesus' birth, the message that centers on Jesus' saving life and death and resurrection and ascension and ultimately His return, that gospel message is not to, for those who consider themselves high and mighty and all sorted out and all put together. It's not for the proud and arrogant. And, and we say this so often from the Scriptures, but it's critical to remind ourselves of this time and time again because it continues to come up. The gospel message is a message for those of us who know ourselves to be low and unknown obscure and, and unimpressive. It's not fancy, self-promoting in, in, its, in its working out, but there's a modesty and a humility to this. The announcement that Mary will be the mother of Jesus comes to an otherwise unknown girl in an, un in an unknown town. And so we can just check our hearts by this as we begin. Have, have I presumed the gospel announcement is for me because I'm doing so well? Because I've got things so ordered and put together, it is no wonder I'm going to be celebrating Christmas like I am. I can't believe the people who don't get it, how foolish of them after all. I'm a perfect candidate for this good news about Jesus. Look at how well things are going for me. Is that our posture at Christmas time? No, that's not our posture at Christmas time at all, is it? We're low at Christmas time. This announcement of Jesus is for those who know themselves to be of little account in the grand scheme of things. For those who come from the town of Nazareth in our heart, so to speak. We recognize our loneliness. We recognize our need. We recognize that ultimately we're of no account. And yet here comes this enormous announcement about the saving and, 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 and reconciling work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so it just helps us as we consider this scene to have our own posture of heart adjusted by it. There's a, there's a Nazareth kind of posture of heart that we can adopt during this Christmas season. Low, unknown, but gloriously aware that the King is coming. And so, and so we have that first of all, and then we move on from there, uh, from verses 26 and 27 into the next two verses, uh, where we have uh, now the, the greeting and the trouble. We'll call it that, the greeting and the trouble. So, so first of all, we had the scene and its characters. Now we're going to have the greeting and the trouble. Uh, so if you look at verse 28, Luke tells us, Gabriel came to Mary, and he greets her, and he says, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, uh, th this term favored woman or favored one, um, it, it could be a li li literally translated as graced one. That's the word that's there. And it, it, 
it needs a little bit of clarification, especially depending on various backgrounds we can come to a text like this. Um, because depending on backgrounds, we can come to this translation of, of Luke's gospel um, and, and read it with a, with a Latin translation background, especially if we have some Catholic church history in our background. Um, so we could hear this greeting and, and, and ha- hear it read this way, Hail Mary, full of grace. Uh, that's the way the Latin translation renders, uh, renders this, and so the English Bibles in some contexts reflect that. And, and in that context, by inference, the case is made that Mary can actually be a dispenser of grace. So, so that she has grace and she can give it. Hey, hey, O Mary, full of grace. So, so there's some significant theology built around that, particularly in the Catholic Church. But a little closer look at the, at the original Greek text demonstrates that we aren't actually able to take the greeting in that kind of way. And this is important to see just the whole tenor of this passage uh, as, as it relates to this. Because what we see here is Mary is not a dispenser of grace. She's not full of grace per se, to allot or disperse, as Latin-based translations imply. She's not a dispenser of grace. Instead, the point of the passage is that she is a recipient of grace. So so the verb translated as favored woman here, or favored one, is is a passive verb indicating that Mary is being acted upon. Um, In a context like this, uh, passive verbs are sometimes referred to by grammarians as a divine passive. In other words, it's not that Mary has grace in and of herself, but instead God is acting upon Mary. He's granting her grace. He's showing her favor. He's being kind toward her in a way that, that demonstrates the, the unmerited and gracious way that God does act toward us in His, in His kindness. And that's exactly what's happening here. So the angel's greeting her in this way. Greeting, as he says to Mary, who has been graced by God, this unique recipient of, of God's grace in this way. And it's just important that we have that perspective clear in our minds, uh, especially as we think about how this term is going to come up again here a little bit later on in our passage. But we just need to have the, the posture of this greeting fresh in our minds simply because this is how the announcement of Christ's birth always comes to us. The announcement of Christ's birth always comes to us in a context not where we have things to dispense, but where we are people in need of the kindness of God. We are people in need of the grace of God extended to us. And that's the exact context in which Gabriel makes the announcement to Mary. Mary, who is the recipient of God's grace, is no, is, is no different in a sense than we can speak to each other as those who come under the sound of the gospel. We speak to each other as the recipients of God's grace, realizing what's been provided for us in Christ. It's a wonderful picture. Uh, that's given that's given to us here. So Gabriel comes to Mary with this greeting. He says the Lord's been gracious to her and, and so on. The Lord is with her. That's the greeting. Uh, but that greeting, it actually brings some trouble to Mary, which is interesting to notice here. So we have the greeting and then there's this trouble, which you see in verse 29. So, so Gabriel greets Mary and then we read that she's deeply troubled or she's deeply perplexed by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. So Mary's thrown a bit by this, and then in the next verse, Gabriel has to tell her not to be afraid. Don't fear, he says to her. Now, uh, like we mentioned earlier, it is interesting to note that it is the message itself that bothered Mary, that put her into this troubled and fearful condition, not the presence of Gabriel. Normally, it's the presence of Gabriel that puts people down on their knees totally terrified. That's not the case. Here, the, the, the text is pretty clear that it's not 
the angel's presence himself that is causing Mary to fear, like in those other instances where men saw the angel fell down in, in fear. No, here, the, the concern and fear on the part of Mary is connected to the message, by the, connected to the statement that the angel makes, which is verse 29. Mary was deeply troubled by what? Not by what she saw, like Zechariah was troubled when he saw Gabriel. No, Mary was deeply troubled by the statement, by the word, verse 29. Which seems a little strange at first, because here's this message of grace, but this message of grace causes Mary to have concern and even a level of, of perplexity and fear as she, as she hears it. Or related to an angelic appearance, we could understand if there was fear just in, his, in the angel's presence, but, but this message of God's grace towards Mary, it causes her uh, to move into this troubled state. Uh, but as we reflect on this a little bit, we can begin to under, understand why her concern is what it is. So we can just think this out a little bit. Mary, uh, she certainly was a righteous young woman. She wasn't sinless. The text does, doesn't leave us to draw any kind of conclusion like that. Mary wasn't sinless in any way, but Mary was a righteous young woman. We see it actually so often as the story goes on. She demonstrates her own trust in God time and time again. And the angel comes to Mary and says she's favored by God. So she's told by this heavenly messenger that she's a recipient of God's grace. And we realize that just at the, at the beginning of what would be an exceptionally unique experience in the life of one particular woman in all of history, Mary is going to be the mother of the God-man Jesus Christ after all. Just in the beginning of all these things, Mary is experiencing a very real awareness of what it means to be moved by reverential fear. Gabriel says that Mary is the recipient of God's grace. And the very next thing Gabriel has to say to her in verse 30 is, don't be afraid. And Gabriel says, greetings, O graced one. It troubles her. But, but as we think about it, isn't that the fitting and proper response to grace that manifests in the coming of Christ? Because Mary's response to being told that she's a recipient of God's unmerited favor, it isn't a response of pride or presumption, and it can never be a response of pride or presumption when we come under the sound of the gospel, the good news that God has been kind to us in Christ. She doesn't hear this message and smile back at Gabriel across the room and say, of course, God will be gracious to me. After all, that's his job. And, and you know, I've, I've been doing pretty well, to be honest with you, Gabriel, so it's really no surprise that you came to see me at all today. I've been expecting. No, that's not what she says. That's not Mary's response. And instead, her response to this greeting is, is a level of, 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 of perplexity and reverential fear. For Mary, there's this realization that what's been extended to her is a transcendent and undeserved reality that leaves her trembling. How can it be that God would be so kind to me? This is beyond my comprehension. It's the same thing we have in the song Amazing Grace, isn't it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to... What's that about? Well, the grace of God in the coming of Christ once realized it's a matter of, of supreme weightiness that can cause us to tremble. We, we think about this at Christmas time, that God would be so kind to us and send His only Son to die for us. We, we know our own hearts. This is mercy that we don't deserve, and this must come from a well of supreme kindness that is so vast beyond our comprehension And the fact that God would act toward us in this way. It's just so divinely big, this grace. It's no wonder it leaves us trembling when we really actively meditate on what this could mean. We consider it and tremble under the God who would give this kind of favor. 
So again, it's the opposite of leaving us high and proud. It leaves me knowing my need. It leaves me low and trembling. What is this that God would be so kind to me? In fact, there's a very good question to ask at Christmas time. What is this that God would be so kind to us? Can we believe that God would send such a wonderful provision for our salvation? The vastness of His love, the vastness of His holiness, and it's been expressed to us in this way. It can leave us trembling as we consider this. Who is this Lord who can be so full of grace? And so we have this here, this greeting from the angel and the trouble for Mary. She's navigating the bigness of what all this could possibly mean. And certainly she's doing so in the unique manifestation that this is coming to her. What an amazing thing uh, for her to begin to work through. And then uh, next in in verses 30 to 34, we move from, um, from, from the greeting and the trouble that it brings. We move to the announcement and the question. So the announcement and the question in verses 30 and 34. Um, if you look at verse 30, you see that Gabriel responds to Mary, like we said. He tells her not to be afraid. And then he tells her again that she's found favor with God. So there we have it again. That phrase, found favor with God, is an expression that actually marks God's gracious interactions with His people all down through the whole Old Testament. We find it, first of all, in God's relationship to Noah in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 6, where we're told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Here it applies to Mary. You found grace or favor with God. It's not an earning thing for Mary. It's this extension of of kindness and mercy from the Lord that's been granted to her. This would have been a comfort to Mary. It's meant to be a comfort to Mary as as she's struggling with the weightiness of what's coming. And then with that, the angel goes on to make his announcement. He says, you'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So so this is that long-awaited announcement. In fact, there's echoes of this in Isaiah 9, which we read for our call to worship today. Who is this one, this son who's coming? The son of God has, has, has... been long promised, he's now going to be born, Mary's going to be the the mother, and she's going to name him Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. And and even just as we think through this announcement for a moment, we can notice the bigness of what Gabriel reveals to to Mary about this child Jesus. So so just follow follow some of this stuff that that Gabriel tells her about Jesus. First of all, verse 32, Jesus will be great and called the Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High is a very significant title, especially when we think back through our Bibles. Um, For example, the the prophet Isaiah condemns Babylon. So that's that city that's a picture of wicked contrariness to God and His people there in the Old Testament. Uh, But Isaiah condemns Babylon for saying, I will make myself like the Most High. That's the trouble with the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon said they were going to be like God, but no one is like the Most High God. So they're condemned by the prophet Isaiah. Or you remember uh, from our studies in Hebrews, that figure Melchizedek, as, as great as he was and as mysterious as he was in the plan of God, he's only referred to as a priest of God Most High. So that degree of separation there. And then there's the Israelites in their psalms of worship, that God the Most High is the object of their praise. It is the, the, the Lord Himself whom they're referencing, obviously, here. In fact, in verse 35 of our, of our section, it is the Most High who's going to be active in the Immaculate Conception that's referenced here. So this is the title that, that belongs to God and God alone. But we have this amazing truth about Jesus that's given here. He's going to be the Son of the Most High God. So so to put that properly, Mary is being told that her son is going to be like in kind to God Himself. 
That's, that's what son means, like in kind. Sonship, especially as we think about the biblical category of sonship and in this Hebrew culture, sonship indicates sameness. You remember when people are all twisted up about Jesus and they say, isn't he just the carpenter's son? Because what is a carpenter's son? Well, he's just the same as a, as a carpenter. The carpenter's the dad, the son's the dad, that's the way the culture works. Sonship is a matter of being like and kind with, with your father. Uh, since, since my boy Ian and I have gotten on the same haircut program, uh, recently, a number of different times I've introduced him as my son. In fact, we met some people down, uh, down in Dallas on a motorcycle ride over the summer on his birthday, uh, who I'd known growing up, and, and I introduced Ian, this is my son, and, and, and my old friend's response, who I hadn't seen in a very long time, his response was, no kidding. Right? Obviously, he's your son. But, but that's, that's what it means to be a son, isn't it? A son is recognizable like, like his dad. Who is Jesus? Well, he's son of the Most High. He, he's, he's like kind to God himself. No one is that great. No one is that great except Jesus himself. The, the demons even knew this. If you remember this in Mark chapter 5, where, where uh, the garrison demoniac filled with a legion of demons, he addresses Jesus by this title as he comes trembling and falls down before Jesus, totally terrified. He says, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? Right? The, the demons knew this and shuddered. And, and, so, and so we take this part of the announcement uh, with, with, with very serious consideration, especially as we just think about during Christmas time, the, the fact that we live in this world of options, don't we? We live in this world of comparisons. We live in this world of, of degrees and categories and, 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 and um, units of measure and all of these kinds of things. And as we think about that in connection to the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially during this Christmas season, we just have to see there is no comparison with Jesus Christ. He is the Son of the Most High God. There is an exclusive exaltedness that goes along with the person of Jesus Christ that sets Him high and above any other options or any other concerns that we might have. Even in the world around us, there is an absolute uniqueness that's lined out in the person of Christ. He is like in kind to God Himself. He's divine. And so we just can, 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 can run with that in our own worship and our own appreciation of what is happening here. Your Son, the angel says, will be great. Well, John the Baptist was, was, was going to be great too. Gabriel actually says the same thing about John the Baptist. Except how will this son be great? Well, this son will be great because he's son of the Most High God. He's God himself. So, so Gabriel tells Mary that, uh, that, that aspect of truth. And then he goes on to say that Jesus will be given David's throne there in verse 32. Um, Jesus is the king that the people have longed for, is what the angel's saying. He's the king promised back in 2 Samuel 7. Maybe someday in our studies in Samuel, if we ever get back to that, uh, we'll get to 2 Samuel 7, where there's this king promised in David's family line who's going to eternally rule God's people forever. And that's what's, that's what's being fulfilled here, the angel said. Jesus is going to hold the throne. He's the powerful deliverer the people need. He's the one who's going to bring climactic justice and peace to all of the, the things that a king perfectly should do for his people. Jesus is the royal son who's going to do this, which is further emphasized in verse 33, where Mary is told that Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, kingdom without end. So there's this eternal reign of, of Christ and his lordship and his kingship. But, but even in the way the angel says this, again, we have an extraordinary expression of grace here. It, 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 it's very easy to pass over that house of Jacob phrase kind of quickly. It just means the house of Israel, whatever it is we read on. But interestingly, when you go back through the Old Testament, almost every time you come across the phrase house of Jacob, 
You're looking straight on at a situation in Israel's history that involves the extraordinary redemptive grace of God in Israel's life. So Jacob, who we know from the Genesis narrative, Jacob is the deceiver, you remember. He's a a twisted up individual. And God had mercy on Jacob as his chosen servant despite Jacob. The designation of house of Jacob is kind of like a a red flag waving saying God is going to be compassionate to the people he's determined to save no matter how twisted up they get. Jesus will be over not just the house of Israel, the house of Jacob forever. So, so, So in that, the angel gives Mary this glimpse of the merciful, eternal, saving, compassionate rule of Jesus Christ over his people who no matter their twisted upness, no matter uh, their their straying hearts and their deceptive ways, they are not ultimately going to be able to escape the grace of this king's kingdom. He's coming for them. And then as we put all this together, of course, this this is the announcement at Christmas time that makes Christmas Christmas. That this one who is God himself has come, And he's come and he's proved himself to be the powerful and climactic king that we need. That's what we have in the gospel record. As we see Jesus in his earthly ministry, what is he doing? He's not conquering Goliath like David. I mean, that was a pretty big deal for David. It proved he could take care of the people of God as their king and so on. But what does Jesus do when he comes? What does he do as our king? Well, he speaks to a girl who's dead laying on her bed and he says, get up. And what does she do? She gets up. Jesus shows himself to be this powerful kingly deliverer that we need, who we now anticipate coming back in his return. But here we have this wonderful statement about this royal, divine reality that is present in the coming of Christ that gives us a hope that extends far beyond every, anything that we've ever had before and extends into eternity itself. This is, this is the Jesus who's going to come. The royal line of David will reach its climactic reality in the fact that we have this king who can absolutely save us from sin from death, from the devil, all of these things. Look at the powerful king who's coming. The better king in David's line. David, he struggled and he, he suffered for the sins that he committed. David made some silly decisions in his life and he suffered for those sins. Jesus is the king who comes and lives perfectly righteously. And he doesn't suffer for his own folly. He has no folly. Instead, he suffers for our folly. And in that act, he redeems us and saves us eternally. So so we just have this climactic picture here of who this son of Mary, uh, who this son that's coming, going to be the son of Mary, is is going to be. He's going to be great, the son of the Most High, the promised Davidic ruler. He's going to come savingly and eternally, compassionately uh, as as the head of God's people. And he's going to to work this this amazing uh, salvation. So the angel makes this announcement. And in response to all that, Mary has a question. And what's her question? How can this be since I am a virgin? That's Mary's question. That's one of the greatest questions in our whole Bible. Gabriel comes to Mary in backwater Nazareth. It talks about the greatness of this son she's about to have. You're going to give birth to this long-promised Messiah. What would you ask when it came time for the Q&A? Wouldn't you ask, how can my boy be likened to God? What do you mean the throne of his father, David? Are you sure? Eternal kingdom, Gabriel? I'm going to need some clarification on this kind of thing. A a son of mine that that, that at the same time is going to be the son of the most high God. There's a whole bunch here I'm not understanding, Gabriel, and I'd like to start working some of these things out. I'd ask those kinds of questions. But Mary doesn't respond in that way. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? 
But what a profound expression of both understanding and faith on the part of Mary. Mary, in effect, says, okay, I understand the time has come for this long-promised Savior that we've been waiting for. She knew the promises. She had the theology. The Deliverer is going to come. He's going to be the Son of God. He, he would be like no one else. It's amazing here to see that the person of the Messiah was not the subject of, the Mary, of, of Mary's question. It's amazing to see that. The theologians of her day, they wouldn't get who Jesus is. The scribes and the Pharisees who memorized the Scriptures and commentaries on commentaries about the Scriptures, they didn't see Jesus when He was standing right in front of them raising people from their mats of paralysis. They didn't get it. But here's Mary, and the angel says, the Messiah is coming, it's time, and she doesn't question it for a moment. She's no doubt growing up, hearing, hearing the Scriptures read in synagogue worship. She knew the promises. She knew the Scriptures. The time had come. No theology questions from Mary, only a biology question. How can this be since I've never had sexual relations with, with a man? And it's just interesting on that point. When, 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 when theology is properly sorted, how much room it gives for practicality in Mary's life. When we know what God has said, the question isn't, who is this Jesus? The question simply becomes, okay, then how is this going to work out for me in a life of obedience? What am I going to do in response to the fact that promises are fulfilled in Christ? Now, what is that going to look at look like in my life? I've got some questions about that, which is a wonderfully mature question uh, to start to ask. I hear what you're saying. I believe I just need the practical part now. Which just reminds us of the importance of moving, uh, not away from, but from theology into practice. The reality of who Christ is doesn't leave us stationary, wondering about uh, the significance of this or that all the time and pondering these things in our minds. The reality of who Christ is and the announcement of His coming leaves us active in very practical ways. Okay, so what does this mean for me now? I've got a biological question. I get the theology. He's coming, Son of the Most High. I say amen to all that, Gabriel. How is this going to work out? I've got some big questions. Right. Move from the theological to the practical very quickly uh, because, of her, uh, because of her extraordinary faith. It's a wonderful thing to see. And so she, she has this question, and the answer comes as, as we look at the next verses. So, verses 35 to 38, where we, where we move now to, uh, to the explanation and submission explanation and submission. The angel there answers Mary's question of how uh, by explaining that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, he says. Uh, so that's how all this is going to happen. The, that, that's the answer to Mary's biological question. There's going to be a miraculous conception. Here we see the direct divine involvement of really the creative agency of the Spirit of God. Same kind of language uh, that we recognize if we start back at the beginning of our Bibles or we don't get past verse 2 of Genesis before we read that, uh, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? In the creation account, we see how the divine agency of God, the Holy Spirit, was working to bring about uh, the good order of God's creative purposes there. And here we're told of that same Spirit of God who will overshadow Mary to bring this life to Mary's womb that's both divine and human. On the, on the one hand, this is so far beyond our understanding, we can, we can hardly begin to comprehend it. But on the other hand, we do understand from a passage like this that God is God and He doesn't operate by the reaches of human limitation. But listen to how uh, one, one Dutch pastor from an earlier generation describes this virgin birth. He says this. I'd give you his last name, but I can't pronounce it. It's spelled O-O-S-T-E-R-Z-E-E. -E -E. Listen to what he says. The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. 
The laws of nature are not changed by which the, divine le- which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They are threads which he holds in his hand and which he shortens and lengthens at will. And in other words, what's he saying? Mary asks, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The answer is the Most High God will act in a unique way. That's how this is going to happen. God is going to do what only God can do. That the creative agency of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to overshadow you, overshadow you just as the Spirit of God was over the waters at the time of creation. It's this unique and divine work that will bring about the fact that Mary's son will also be called what? The Holy One, the Son of God. And then then in verse 36, Gabriel tells Mary that her relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age. So Mary doesn't know yet that Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Um, You can go back and read the beginning of Luke for that story. But the angel gives this indicator that God is already working outside normal parameters in this unique time of inbreaking grace. God's already been working in ways outside of the norm. And then in verse 37, the angel lays down the principle that runs from God's promise to Abraham all through his dealings with his people. And the principle is this, nothing will be impossible with God, Gabriel says. Nothing will be impossible with God. That's the main thing. Nothing will be impossible with God. And with that answer, Mary's satisfied. And she's not just satisfied, but she she submissively yields there in verse 38. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. So says one commentator, faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Nothing is impossible with God. He's all-powerful. And to that, Mary replies, I'm the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you've said. And so so we put these things together. This announcement is made to Mary. and And we want to think about this. Well, because in certain ways... While this is unique to Mary, we can see our own reflection in the experience of Mary. The Lord comes to us with the revelation of the person of Christ. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what He's come to do. He makes His word and His way known through the Scriptures to us. And how do we respond to that? This is a wonderful picture of submission to that word and a practical response to what it means to follow the God who reveals His saving plan in Jesus Christ. We can hear these words about what is coming and and, and oftentimes it can come to us in ways that will end up bringing great struggle to us. We know this from Mary's own story. She is very very much going to be ostracized from her family. She's almost going to be uh, removed from the engagement situation by Joseph who who she's engaged to. There's going to be a lot of troubles and trials that are coming and no doubt Mary would be very aware of the costly nature of what all this is going to mean, at least to some degree. This is no ordinary thing. This is going to be deeply impactful in her life. And what does she rest on as she comes to the conclusion that she's going to submit and go in God's way? She says, may it be as you've said. What does she rest on? Well, she rests on the fact that God is all-powerful and He's going to bring about His purposes just as He says He's going to bring them about. And as we come to Christ, even as we think about it during this holiday season, that posture of heart is so critical for us because when it comes to following Jesus for us in all these different ways that He, that he affects our lives, in the sphere of friendship, in the spheres of, of family life, in the spheres of what we say are going to be our ambitions in life and most important to us, the ways we spend our time and money and all of these things, He comes to us, we have the announcement that this Savior is born who calls us into His service as the eternal King. And oftentimes we can have the practical questions wondering how all of this is going to work out. Because as I think about following Jesus over here, maybe in family life, my goodness, that's going to bring some tensions. 
And as I think about following Jesus over here, maybe in my professional life, that's going to require that I dial some things back that I was really heavily pursuing. And over here and over here and over here and all of these different things. And we can rest in the fact that the God who made the announcement of the Savior's coming continues to prove himself all-powerful in bringing about his saving purposes. And we can rest not in knowing exactly what the days ahead are going to hold. Mary knows no doubt that there will be struggles, but she has no idea the depths of what the days ahead are going to hold. We don't rest in knowing the future. We rest in an understanding that the God who promises Jesus is the God who is the all-powerful God, and He brings about His ends for His people, whom He has extended unmerited favor to. He is the God of grace. He's the God who comes to us first and says, the grace that we do not deserve has been applied to us. And in response to that grace being applied to us, we live out our lives just as Mary does, in submission. Not in total knowledge of what it's all going to be about, but in submission to His holy will, knowing that whatever else happens, Jesus the Messiah, in her case, is coming, in our case, has come. And because He's come, we can live out our days knowing the all-powerful God will keep His purposes and fulfill His will. And we rest in that. We rest in that. And maybe there's a particular area in your life this Christmas season that you can rest in that a little more, knowing that following Jesus climactically secures you. And in the midst of all these different things that you may be facing, uh, you can rest assured that God's purposes will be fulfilled for you because the coming of Christ proves that. He's come and He's extended love and security to you through His cross, and nothing can remove you from God's fatherly care. And in that, we take great comfort. And so we embrace the announcement. Jesus is coming and we say, may it be according to your word. Let us serve you. That is our great desire to respond in service. Let's pray. So Father, we ask that we would have the grace to respond. Uh, we ask that we would see Christ for who he is, Son of the Most High. What a glorious reality. Uh, we ask that we would have the grace to tremble before uh, your kindness to us. What a thing that you would extend such kindness to us and save us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We feel ourselves to be the house of Jacob. We feel ourselves to be twisted in many ways. And yet here, there you are, the God who continues to come to us, continues to draw us to yourself and secures us forever through the cross of Christ. And we praise you for that. We pray that we would rest in that this Christmas season. We ask this in Jesus' own name. Amen.